Iran, not a paragon of virtue, may have a lesson to teach the United States in health care. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Benjamin Hippen. Dr. Hippen is a transplant nephrologist in private practice in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he is an at-large member of Eunice's Ethics Committee. He is also an associate editor of the American Journal of Transplantation. Thank you very much, Dr. Hippen, for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to be discussing why there is no weight for organs, especially kidneys, in Iran. But before we get to that, could you kind of give us an overview of what is happening in the United States as far as our organ shortages at the present time? Well, as your listeners may or may not know, there's a growing disparity between the demand for and supply of organs for transplantation in the United States and indeed around the world. The number of people with kidney failure in the United States has been steadily rising from year to year. However, the number of organs that we've been able to procure for transplantation, while it's gone up somewhat, has not gone up at the same rate. Consequently, this growing disparity between demand and supply is translated into longer and longer waiting times for organs. And for people with kidney failure, both in the United States and around the world, time on the waiting list means time closer to death. In the United States, the five-year median survival on dialysis is 35%. That is, of people who start dialysis, five years later, two-thirds of them are dead. Now, the select few, about 20% in the United States, who are listed for transplantation represent a cohort of people that are healthier than that, but even among that small cohort, the rate of death is about 50% after 10 years. And the reason for this is that dialysis takes an enormous toll on the cardiovascular system, and most people who end up dying on dialysis die from heart disease or related cardiovascular complications. So as a result, that time on the waiting list becomes crucial, both in terms of surviving long enough to get a transplant and also doing well after transplant. We know that the longer one waits on the list, the worse one does after transplantation, largely because of the accumulated comorbidities. What does the future look like? You know, we've been spending an awful lot of time, it seems, spinning our wheels in the United States with attempts at solicitation, using the Internet, using the newspaper, having various people who are looking for organs, using every modality to get to the public, which, again, brings up the whole question, is this a level playing field? We've had the Norwalk Act, which allowed matching and exchanges. We have driver cards. We have all types of attempts. We even have presumed consent now taking place. Are any of these things making a dent? Well, some of them are. In the last several years, the United Network for Organ Sharing, or UNOS, which is the uh, regulatory body that oversees solid organ transplantation in the United States, has made a concerted effort to try and improve the rate of procurement of deceased donor organs. And this is all occurring under a multidisciplinary rubric called the Organ Donor Collaborative. And the collaborative has been successful in increasing the number of organs from deceased donors. It's up about 30% over the last 10 years. The problem is is that the rate of growth of the number of people who need kidneys and indeed could benefit from kidneys has gone up for a couple of reasons. One, as I already mentioned, the number of patients with kidney failure is going up at a higher rate. But also with improvements in the medication that's available in terms of immunosuppression, more and more people, people who perhaps 10 years ago might not have been considered for transplantation, we now know will benefit from transplantation. So that's added to the numbers of people waiting for a kidney. Also, the organs that have been procured through the efforts of the collaborative are not the best organs. And what I mean by that is many of these organs fall into the category that transplant professionals call extended criteria organs. These are organs from people who, when they die, are 
often older, older than the age of 55, or who may have had high blood pressure or diabetes during their lifetime. And what we know about these kidneys is that while getting a kidney from an extended criteria donor is better than staying on dialysis in terms of patient survival, the five-year outcomes from those kidneys are about 50% graft survival, which is considerably less than the outcomes from a standard criteria deceased donor kidney, which is about 75%. So the bulk of the growth in the number of organs that we're getting through these efforts, which are working to some extent, are really not the best kidneys. And in fact, many of these folks may end up needing retransplantation, which only defers the problem and doesn't actually fix it. And the number of organs from living donors, for reasons that I'm not sure anybody really knows, has been flat since 2005, in spite of the growing demand. That sort of leads us up to the current problem. Could you tell us a little bit about the cost? We know that chronic renal disease is the only disease that is underwritten by Medicare. And I think when that first took place, I don't think anybody realized the cost that was going to take place. So could we balance the cost of dialysis against the cost of transplantation? Absolutely. Transplantation, in addition to conferring an improved quality and quantity of life to those who receive it, is also considerably cheaper than the cost of dialysis. So, for example, in 2005, Medicare alone paid $21 million for all renal replacement therapies. That's dialysis and transplantation combined. Of that $21 billion, only $2 billion of that went to transplantation, and that's the cost of the surgery, the hospitalizations, and the medications. Interestingly, Medicare pays for 80% of the transplant immunosuppression medications for three years. After three years, if the patient doesn't have private insurance, they have to pay for it out of pocket or find another way to get those medications. And that can sometimes be a real hardship for people who are on disability or a fixed income or who are unemployed. So we are now seeing the perverse consequences of an open-ended and funded mandate for a modality that is manifestly inferior to another modality that came along later but is clearly superior. And so there are a couple of economists who have looked at how much money you could pay for an organ and still break even. And it depends on how you calculate that, whether you're looking at just how much money it would cost to pay for dialysis for someone versus pay for an organ, the immunosuppression, the doctor's visits, and the rest, or whether you want to calculate it in terms of increased quality of life years because a great number of people who get a transplant who are of working age go back to work and become taxpayers again. And so one can also calculate it by filtering and all those things. But the bottom line is you could pay someone upwards of fifty to $75,000 per organ and still come very close to breaking even versus maintaining someone on dialysis. And indeed, you would confer many more years of life to the person who got the transplant. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Benjamin Hippen, a transplant nephrologist and a member of UNIS, which stands for the United Network for Organ Sharing, their ethics committee. You touched on an interesting thing, Dr. Gary Becker, I know, has published on this in Economist, that for $15,000 in the United States, we would increase the number of transplants by 44% and that it would take almost $40,000 in cash to the donor to actually increase our number of transplants by two-thirds. This is an interesting figure. It sounds like a lot, but when you put it next to the amount of money you've just described that we're spending on dialysis, it looks like a win-win situation. Do you kind of agree with that? I do, although I think the exact number is something that people who know far more about economics and public policy than I, it's probably best to adjudicate. The solution that I favor, actually, is a multi-pronged one. 
my view is is that there are a lot of different incentive programs that could be put into place. And as a clinician, I'm much more concerned about the side constraints or the safety mechanisms or checks on these different kinds of incentives that would be necessary to make them morally defensible. To me, what the specifics of the incentive, whether it be a cash payment or something less fungible than that, such as a deposit in a 401k or a 529 or a health savings account, that is something that's of value but is not as fungible as cash, to me is, is less important than that the incentive not be exploitative, that it be fair compensation, and that it can't be abused or gamed in various ways that would harm either the people selling the kidney or the people receiving the kidney. You know, the numbers are staggering, though. Some people say that 18 people on the list die every day and that 100 join the list every day. And I say also that the list may actually be artificially small, that many people don't even get on the list because they're not encouraged to because the outlook is so poor to getting a donor. And also that by the time they do get a donor, they medically are not going to be able to go through the rigors of surgery. So our list may actually be artificially small. Do you have any data to substantiate even that concept? I do, actually. There was a recent study in the journal that I serve as an associate editor on the American Journal of Transplantation that looked at demographic data from the end-stage renal disease population. And what they were specifically looking at was demographic features of dialysis patients that would suggest that they would survive longer than five years on dialysis. And if they did survive longer than five years on dialysis, the hypothesis was that they ought to be referred for transplantation, since they would seem just prima facie, those folks would be good transplant candidates. This issue came up because there was some concern that there are a number of people on the transplant waiting list that are listed inactive. But what that study showed was that while there were a number of patients on the waiting list that there was some concern about with regard to their transplant candidacy, there were more than 100,000 people they estimated in the United States out of the some 380,000 dialysis patients in the United States that had demographic features that suggested that they ought to be transplant candidates but were not even referred for transplantation. So as you say, the list may be vastly underestimating uh, the potential need. So having described what exists in the United States and the alarming aspects for so many of our citizens, we now know that Iran, of all the countries, has no waiting list. Why is this? What is their system like? Well, in Iran there is a regulated market in organs. It's loosely regulated, but there are certain conventions as to how that market proceeds. And they've been engaged in this since 1988. And they've kept track of their outcomes, at least for their recipients, since that time. And the reason that Iran got involved in this is because Iran, like other countries in the world, were facing an epidemic of people with kidney failure. And this is for a variety of reasons. But Dialysis, both in this country and around the world, is quite expensive. And in countries where expenditures on public health is quite limited, there was a lot of interest and attention in finding alternative modalities that would allow people to continue living without the extravagant cost of something like dialysis. And Iran was uh, doubly struggling in the mid-'80s because after the 1979 Islamic Revolution, a number of transplant professionals fled, mostly to Europe. And so they were faced both with an epidemic of kidney failure as well as with a lack of trained and skilled personnel to take care of patients, both from the standpoint of providing dialysis and transplantation. And so the need for a cheap and reproducible modality that worked, like transplantation, became very important in Iran. And in 1988, they started a process whereby they would identify people who were interested in selling their kidney 
they would go through a screening process, which we can talk about. And by 1999, the waiting list for people waiting for kidneys had been eliminated and has been eliminated since. That doesn't mean that everyone in Iran with kidney failure gets a transplant. But Iran, proportionally to the United States, transplants their patients with kidney failure at about three times the rate we transplant our patients. And if we were transplanting patients at that rate, we'd probably eliminate our list in a few years as well. This certainly is probably not a perfect system, but certainly it's a step in a direction towards saving lives that might be used as a model of some sort in the United States. We've been talking to Dr. Benjamin Hippen, and I'd like to thank him. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com, register with promo code radio, and receive six months for free streaming for your home or office. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.